revolutionary, forward-thinking, way ahead of the industry. Innovation is in the veins. Those are words and statements that excite me about my conversation with Nathan Slaughter. Yeah, he checks all the boxes for the future of the industry. Worked with actual clients, managing money, and building relationships, check. Was part of building an innovative early fintech success story with Honest Dollar, check understands how to grow efficiently a wealth management practice, check. After exiting from Honest Dollar, which revolutionized the way individuals could save for retirement, he spent some time with Goldman before going back on his own to help advisors grow their firm using innovative technology and marketing strategies of today with his new company, Starfuel. He's got the the knowledge advisors need to stay ahead of the curve. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Nathan Slaughter, thank you for joining us, man. Glad to have you on Bridging the Gap. Hey, thank you very much for having me, Matt. Excited about what you're doing. Yeah, well, I'm excited uh, for this conversation, and and I think that it's going to be a conversation full of... Um, teaching others a lot about kind of technology and innovation, but that's a passion of yours, right? Teaching uh, young people, and and you kind of have a different perspective relative to others in terms of, uh, you know, how young people actually like to be, you know, like to be taught things. Well, I, I definitely do have a, a little bit of a different perspective, uh, being really close with a younger brother who's 23 years younger. Uh, and parenting here in the past couple of years has given me a whole new perspective on it. But I've I've always loved teaching, and uh, it's always been a passion of mine. Yeah, and I, I I love that, and I and I think that it is an interesting perspective to be able to have a brother twenty three years younger than you, um, and and then even more so. That, that is interesting, but your story gets even more interesting because you said that you now are a father, and, uh, and you're not just in wealth management technology. You may be kind of a doctor in some essence. In, in some essence. Uh, being able to deliver kids uh, is quite the skill. You got, you got the broad range of skill sets. Yeah. Um, you know, things don't always happen as planned, and we definitely had our second one come a little bit faster than expected, so... I delivered him on the side of the road, and uh, my wife does remind me that delivering a baby is not equivalent to giving birth to a baby. So, <laughs> they, our wives always have something to hold over us. That is for sure, uh, and rightfully so. Rightfully so. Well, let's get into this, and I, I'm I'm really excited about this conversation because. Um, we got connected via technology, and so without technology, we never would be having this conversation, uh, which is pretty amazing. But your background is is incredible, and I think that advisors can learn a lot from where you've come from and what you've been able to, to accomplish. And I want to really start at the beginning um, with where you managed high net worth individuals with U.S. Bank in the past, and so you know the business. And looking back on your days then and now understanding what is available for advisors today from uh, technology, but also from, you know, the opportunities with custodians and everything of that nature. What do you wish you had as an advisor that is now available for advisors today? You know, some of the biggest things and the biggest advances, I think, have been in terms of both CRM technology 
um, and the adoption that has actually happened within the banks. Um, and, you know, when I was there, I think the rest of the world, the, the banks especially, but the finance world in general, always lags in technology adoption. And so when I was there managing portfolios, even though the rest of the world had really caught on with that managing the client relationship with technology and, and more personalization, it was still happening uh, a lot more slowly there. So that's one of the things that I think, um, you know, I, I had had or I, I wish that I had had at the time and wish that I had understood also the, the power of it because it was both facets, you know, I, I didn't really um, have the same understanding for how it could be used to enhance a human relationship. Right. And I, and I think you made a great point there talking about uh, how our industry lags with regards to adoption and innovation and especially technology. And everybody has their opinion on it. It usually surrounds or goes around regulation. Why do you think we are so bad at adopting new technologies? Or not bad. Let me say that, rephrase it. So slow at adopting new technologies. You know, I think regulation is a huge part of it. So, you know, when you are in an industry where you need to talk to uh, the head of compliance and you probably need to talk to a compliance specialist about everything that you do, that does slow things down. I, there is another part of it that's about mindset. And I, I think a lot of it goes to the fact that where are you going to do a wealth management practice? It's probably not with the people who are up and coming, who are doing whatever they can to get an edge right now uh, because they need to run hard, fast, lean and mean. It's probably with the people who were doing that 10 plus years ago. Mm -hmm. So, you know, now you're catering to a, a crowd that is probably more defensively postured. And, and you know, this is, this is just my view of uh, kind of seeing over the years how psychology affects it a lot and how, you know, there's different phases in growth. But I, I think that's, that is a part of it that, that you cater to that entrenched defensive already done it um, kind of area of the economy. And I agree with that. And I see it firsthand. I, I see it within a firm that my, my, my dad started, but also when we do roundtables, we, we brought in a, uh, you know, a, a, a varying degree of experience, right? We had the younger advisors, we had older advisors, and I see it all the time where the older advisors that have been in the industry, maybe 15, 20 years or so, still drive on the on the uh, the value prop that they have is that they have a great investment philosophy that they can outperform the market and they have a great strategy on that side whereas then you look at the younger people at the table and what they are talking about is the holistic approach and the fulfillment that they're providing to their clients and helping them be the quarterback through the relationship and it's a drastically different um, mentality of the value that advisors uh, provide to their clients and and so I think that you're exactly right. The, 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 the guy that is focused on market performance solely isn't really going to invest much or take the time to think about CRM technology because how does that help me outperform the market? It doesn't. But the holistic guy sees it or the gal sees it and says, this helps me create a better relationship with my clients. And that's why I think it's starting to hopefully maybe get faster adoption. And, you know, I... I think it is. I think a lot of it goes to the understanding that we have now of how big a role psychology plays. And that was talked about 
you know, moderately in the active-passive debate. But then, you know, with Kahneman and Tversky and everything and behavioral economics coming in and influencing our thinking, we realize that so much of the value an advisor can add is in helping the client deal with their own psychology. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's a new mindset and that's going to be really uh, important in the years ahead and probably influence a lot of technology adoption. Uh, I, I'm into that. Preach on that. I agree. Uh, Daniel Kahneman is an amazing mind and and reading his stuff has been eye-opening and, and changing in the way that that at least people surrounded here have, have thought about uh, about managing money. And, and I want to lead that into kind of going into the future, right? With behavioral economics, with technology adoption, with a shift from the old generation of advisor to the new generation of advisor, what are the challenges that you see? Because you talk with a lot of advisors and you've seen it a lot. What are the two to three challenges that keeps coming up within a, within a firm time and time again? Well, it is quite a bit different if you're talking to uh, founder of a fairly established practice, and there's three or four advisors working with them, that person has a very different perspective uh, than the advisor, you know, who has just hit their stride and is still fairly new to the business, even though they may be uh, extremely successful. Um, so, so there's a lot of differences, and I don't want to overgeneralize. But, you know, one of the things just to hone in on, uh, I think right now, and one of the biggest challenges uh, that comes up for both is positioning the value of advice, advice and counsel. Um, Because even though that's always been a part of the value proposition and people uh, talked about it and you kind of sold it, you know, did you really sell it if that wasn't what was in your pricing model? Um, And so did the clients really buy it? Because if you look at the contracts and you look at what people were really signing up for, then the it was always around, you know, AUM fees and the advice was actually free. Um, And so now if you take away the value of that AUM fee, which I think is the area that the industry has been hit the hardest on um, and and there's just so much fee compression then you you do have to come around and say well well why do you want something that's you know n- not just the robo advisor and not just um you know put it in a model mm-hmm. um but but why do you need any other aspect of the relationship well you have to go back to that value and talk about the value of the relationship now and it it's very challenging when that's not the premise that you started from that is a, I mean, that is going to be the question for the next 10 years. And that's going to be, there's going to be innovators that come out and say new pricing models of how do you provide that value without charging an AUM fee. But I think it also gets to the point, and this kind of leads into the next question of we have to be better as advisors of showing and marketing our value to the client. And and that happens before they become a client, when they're a prospect, and then also after they're a client, right? Well, just because they're a client doesn't mean you shouldn't continue to let them know, hey, you remember that time I helped you save $25,000 in taxes and whatever the value may be, or, or you f- you got up to that $10,000 trip that you wanted to do and I helped you get there. How we advertise our value 
is changing. And so that gets into my, you know, another question is, what is the changes that are coming in and how advisors advertise? You have regulation, so you got to be careful there, but you have advancements in technology about how we can get to our prospects and our clients. How does that look? I mean, that's what you guys focus on at Starfuel uh, a lot, Alan. So what do you see there? You know, I think the the biggest is um, people aren't as per se when you talk about it uh, because, you know, everything has evolved so fast in media and with social media and how we engage. Um, but the biggest one there is a lot of advertisement that it's advertisement because you're paying to put it in front of clients, uh, whether, you know, you're paying for distribution over Facebook, over YouTube, uh, or, or any of the other ad networks. But, um, it's going to be about, that's how we distribute content now. And, um, you know, there's, there's a couple of schools of thought around that where, um, you know, there's definitely greater awareness and greater education so that uh, we can move past uh, where we were in terms of education. But there's still a massive amount of wealth in the hands of people who are not educated about the fundamentals. And I think a biggest part of the reason is uh, because there's an instant barrier, because they see it and it looks like advertising and they say, you're not trying to help me and educate me, you're trying to sell me something. And so that's the biggest change is to recognize nobody wants to be sold, not in this business, not in any other. And you do have to pay now to get your um, content and your educational materials branded and otherwise in front of just about anybody. You know, it, it's not Twitter and Facebook of five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and I think so that that's, a, that's a challenge as well for uh, advisors that are numbers people. We're always looking for ROI and marketing is a tough one. You can you can see via Google Analytics and you can drive through the funnel and kind of see the, the flow of how people are going. But in, a, in such a crowded space and, and a noisy space, you know, you go and search financial advice for a retiree, you're going to get 15 million results on search and the top three paid ad ones are going to be PNC and Chase, right? And so how do you, as a, as a financial advisor, sift through that noise? What's something that they could do to sift through that noise and be seen and be heard and be different than the rest of the, the noise that's out there? Well, part of this is that um, you do you do actually have an opportunity to show up right next to those people and you know right next to PNC and Chase. Uh, and that's the beauty of internet advertising versus television is that you don't need to go out and spend a minimum of five thousand dollars to get a placement, you know, and, and you can get equal placement with them. So that's that's a part of it. And there's a whole section of, you know, underserved people there who they could see those ads all day and they're never going to go to the big banks and they're not going to go to the big banks because it's the big bank. But you have a chance because that that is your positioning all uh, basically is I have the independence and the freedom to serve you, um, you know, to the utmost of my conscience and then you know, position why that's different. Whereas, you know, you can't sell that inside of the big bank. It's it's a different sell and a different value proposition. So, so that's one part of it. You know, another part 
is going to be a learning curve for everybody. Uh, I think what you're doing, because, you know, in your new office, you put a media studio, you dedicated space to that. Well, uh, the hard part and what I think a lot of people don't want to hear is that is a skill. Uh, it's a communication skill that maybe people like my little brother don't have to work on it because he literally grew up on Instagram uh, and he grew up engaging by video with his friends on Instagram. Um, I'm just learning how you get in front of a camera and really communicate uh, what you know what's there. And uh, that's a skill that I think will serve advisors who commit to it very well, uh, because that's going to be something that we use in the new way that we serve clients and the new way that we connect with them all the way before they are clients. Yeah, you know, I think that, and that kind of leads to video being kind of a, a, a way of distancing yourself from the noise. And, and, and there's not enough advisors out there doing it because they think that they have to be, have a professional studio to do it. But, you know, now we have these iPhones in our pockets that have cameras that are better than our parents ever had uh, from that standpoint. And you can just pop it up and, and deliver value. And I've seen some really innovative things as I've talked with other advisors. And one of those being uh, advisors actually doing video statements, which is actually really a cool thing. Uh, the idea of being able to walk through a statement with someone uh, via video and you can record it and a lot. And if you have your cl similar clients that maybe fall into similar buckets, maybe growth clients and income clients, they can actually just get up on a video, walk through that, talk about a few of the holdings that are on the statement, help people understand how to read the statement but instead of just doing it via audio or via email or in person with every one of those clients, you can send it out to 10 people. You've recorded it once and it's a valuable and it's relatable and it's personable to that individual client. So I think that video, we just have to get over that hurdle of the first, second or third video because they're all going to stink. They always have for everybody. But the fourth, fifth, and sixth ones are going to be really great. I want to take a step back for a second and, and talk about kind of your past uh, within fintech and uh, with Honest Dollar. It, within the fintech world, which I've been following for some time and been a part of for a little bit of time, this was seen as one of the quickest success success stories around, right? You guys uh, built an amazing company and were acquired within a short period of time. Uh, can you tell the advisors the problem that y'all were solving and why do you think you were able to have such success so quickly with Honest Dollar? Yeah, I, I definitely, uh, I love that question, partly because that is the thing that I hear about the most about Honest Dollar. And I, I always chuckle just a little bit about how it was such a quick success because I see all of the people who were involved and I see everything that went into it up to Honest Dollar. And it was just the legal structure that was really fast. Um, everything leading up to that was, you know, the work of many uh, interesting, varied, and uh, awesome careers of, of skill development and growth uh, in the people that I got to work with. So um, one of the things that we found very early was a an opportunity to focus not just on the small business, uh, which this was, you know, a way to formalize and help small businesses um, incentivize its savings with their employees um, at a level and a scale earlier than they were previously given access to. 
and also at uh, at a price that they were not given access to. If you know that market, it's still one of the very rich markets in terms of uh, AUM fees and retirement plans. So, you know, there was all of that aspect, but a part of it was uh, focus and connection and finding right at the same time that this thing was happening with the gig economy. And, you know, you were talking about these platforms essentially for different types of freelancers. Uh, what we found and focused on was a subset of that gig economy that had been essentially dismissed as uh, freelancers who didn't have any wealth management needs. And so that was a, an opportunity that had had been defined. And then we became a part of that and partnered with some of the gig economy companies in helping to serve that need. Um, you know, and that's kind of, if you think in terms of business strategy, that's like a blue ocean opportunity, right? Where you're you're not going in the space where everybody's competing. So that was a big one in terms of getting traction fast. Uh, the other aspect that I, I think happens so much with startups is if you look at the ones who are successful, and Honest Dollar is a great case of this, and you look at the founders uh, setting vision, you look at the people who came on board, early and and what you find out is like this was anything but overnight um and and if you look at where the people are now you know Worley, the founder of that company um both prior to honest dollar and now after honest dollar is doing really really uh interesting things and has you know just kind of figured out that go into a new market and connect with it and some other people who were very early in that company and founders um Anthony Bennell, a guy that you haven't heard about yet, but uh, just an amazing mind in terms of uh, he was a, a wholesaler prior inside of one of the big banks and really understood all the markets. And, and so there was incredible strategic thinking uh, and then, you know, a combination of awesome skills, um, you know, coming together with just uh, Worley's an incredible recruiter, so mm -hmm. he can go get all these people, find them, and then convince them, hey, uh, come work for this thing that leave your proven idea and come work for this unproven thing. And by the way, you're going to take a pay cut while you're doing it. And, you know, if we were really lucky and somebody will give us a good look later and and it'll make up for what you do in these years. That so, is, yeah, um, that is so, I, fun. I, I love hearing that story. And I think that, you know, that question falls into the trap that I try to stay out of all the time. And, and I tell other people about is that they think that these, you know, Facebooks and Amazons and Honest Dollars, they just come and we only hear about them after all the work has been done and the the the, the successes and the the the, the curve of, of the highs and the lows and, and the work and the effort day to day that goes into building that company. And from the outside, all we see is the success and uh, the amount of time and the failures that they experience throughout that process is is amazing in in when you think about it, the difficulty to get to that point, uh, but it, you fall into, uh, that's like the social media trap. You only take pictures of your life when it's good. You're never exposing yourself on social media when things are bad. And uh, the successful startups are the only ones we talk about. And we think they did it so quickly, but in reality, it's a lot more work than and time uh, than we see on the, on the surface. 
Um, I want to kind of lead into, we're, we're going to get to buy, sell here in a little bit. Uh, one of my favorite cheesy games that I made up. Um, but I, it, I posted something on LinkedIn and we talked about it uh, a little bit briefly before we started uh, recording here about where advisors are going to be in five years. And I, I asked whether the advisor-client relationship was going to be different five years from now buy or sell. And so I want you to take your crystal ball out. And you said, buy, buy, buy on that. And so I want you to take your crystal ball out and say, how is the landscape going to look in five years from now? Uh, The pressure that is on AUM fees right now is going to continue. Um, And, you know, just like we go through with every cycle, um, when you really see it, and when everybody stops talking about it, it gets real and people start making career decisions on it. It's when we have the next downturn. And so, you know, whenever that happens, um, it, it's going to redefine things because clients are going to be reassessing and there's going to be money in motion and that's going to define the business landscape. So uh, one of the things there is going to be all around the, the thing that we've been talking about so much, which is redefining the value. And like you were talking about, I think the quarterback thing is huge. I don't think it is, it's going to look like, you know, I'm a financial life coach. I don't think that's where it's going. I think it's more like um, you're going to have to have those skills and really deliver on that. Um, and I think that there's going to be more positioning directly uh, around some kind of retainer aspect. So maybe you can come in and it doesn't matter if you're a $150,000 client or you're, let's say, a million dollar. And in a bracket like that, uh, you might have a, a similar fee. And so it won't be directly AUM. It'll be more um, molded toward the work that's being done. And then, of course, you, you know, you always are going to have that family office space where asset allocation and portfolio management is kind of a fine art for each client. Um, but, but in the, in the other space, the, the difference is going to be more alignment, uh, with the amount of work and value delivered per case. And and I can agree with that. I think there's a, there's a firm that I know out in, uh, out on the West coast and they manage $1.7 billion in passive management assets. They don't charge a fee. They charge zero free for passive management. But what they also do is they char- they do alternative investments. So think about PE funds, mezzanine debt, et cetera. And they charge 700, they have about 750 million under management there and they charge all of their fee on that because that's unique and differentiated relative to passive management. Uh, but the way that they got that money was by saying, hey, I'll do your passive management of your $4 million uh, portfolio, uh, but I'm not gonna charge you for it. I'm gonna have you put a couple of that, you know, million of that or so into this these funds that we can continue to, to go and research, which is another way, an innovative way of thinking about it, right? How do we continue to differentiate ourselves? And I think that that's where it's going to really, really go. I, I want to close on this. And um, given your experience in technology and marketing, um, I'm going to ask you two questions on this, on this. And so I want to know what you think advisors' biggest misconception is when it comes to technology within their firm. And I want to ask you, what is their biggest misconception about marketing their firm? So, great questions. Um, And this is probably one more that I think about every day. 
um, just the conversations that I'm in. And the biggest misconception uh, on technology, I think, is there's always the idea that doing the new project is going to be painful and costly. And, and then it seems like, um, okay, so we're going to set a project and we're going to migrate. And there's this idea of it's going to be like slowly peeling back and transitioning. Um, really, there needs to be a much more tactical uh, focus and thought about this of what's the thing that as soon as it's done, it's the opposite of painful and costly, right? What's the thing that gives us high ROI? And then how do we get that done inside of one month or three months? So we don't have this fatigue with the support staff and everybody setting in of, you know, where they're just getting beaten down with migration work. Um, so there's the misconception with technology. With marketing, I think the uh, biggest misconception is uh, people don't buy based on marketing in my business because it is so uh, so much about trust. That's true that it's about trust, but marketing is really, and, and always has been actually, a big part of building the trust. So uh, there, there's definitely more that goes into it. There's definitely, you know, it's not upfront uh, transactional, but there definitely is, um, you know, a, a big misconception that referrals aren't built around marketing um, and also that referrals are the way that new clients come into to finance businesses. And, and I also think um, you, people are missing that all of that changes um, whenever people are more used to doing business with people that they've never met. I, I mean, I in a sense, I feel like I know your thinking and I know a lot about you because I interact with you on social media. Mm -hmm. So you know, I, I already do feel a personal connection and even more so because I see you like you're laid back on video and you're getting out there just, you know, throwing some ideas around. And it's like we've we've sat down and just kind of talked about the industry and what's going on. Um, and so that is definitely going to be more influential than I think a lot of people are expecting because we didn't grow up on Instagram. Yeah, marketing is definitely a long game. And now you have the ability of connecting and sharing your life with your clients and letting them get to know you and get a more personal connection with you, uh, whether it be on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or LinkedIn, whatever it may be. Um, and I agree 100% with you. All right, I, I want to go into the buy-sell. All right, so this is a cheesy game I created because we're talking to financial advisors and they always love to say buy, sell. Uh, and, uh, and so we're gonna do that. I'm gonna give you a, a, a statement and I want you to say whether you're buying it or you're selling it, meaning you disagree with it. And then we can talk about it for a minute or so. We're gonna have four of these and we'll go through all of them. Um, so we'll see, we'll see how much Kramer-esque is in you uh, today with fast money. Um, Buy or sell, greater than 50% of investment advice clients will deal solely with technology with regards to their portfolio in the next five years. Well, if we, if we count the people who are just getting uh, an asset allocation at most inside of their company retirement plan as, as a part of that landscape, then that might already be true because they don't have a personal relationship. Um, I, I do think 
that it's going to be more technology driven, but I, I also think that there, you know, some of the things we've talked about, that video is going to be more engaging and that even though they're dealing solely with technology, there's also a person behind it who can get on the, the call or whatever the medium is and share with them in a very personal way. So it's technology that leverages personality. So are you, are you selling it or are you buying it? I am you gotta, I'm buying that because right. I, I think I think we may already be there. Really, you, you, you sound like sometimes some sometimes when you know when I, I don't necessarily know whether I want to buy or sell a stock, I just kind of go around it, skirt around it, and uh, and my clients are like, "Well, do you want to buy it or do you want to sell it?" Uh, all right, buy or sell. Investment advisors have gotten over the hump in regards to accepting greater technology usage within their firm. Oh, that's that's a buy. That's a definite buy. From when I was, you know, looking at the guys who had uh, that I was working directly with um, at, at U.S. Trust, you know, they were um, just at the end of the reluctant cycle. And now it doesn't matter, you know, if you've been doing this 30 years, uh, 40 years, um, everybody has had to accept it. And so you might not be the best at using your CRM, but it's not like you believe that that's an invalid way to manage the practice anymore. That that ship sailed, I, I am with it. I think the hump is over. It's just a matter of what do you do next to make it work? Love it. And, um, and I agree somewhat. I think that there is technology um, that is being used because they have to uh, but I don't know if they're adopting it and using it to the fullest extent, which wasn't part of the question, but just my two cents. Buy or sell, and the reason I ask you this is because you talk with a lot of investment advisors from a marketing perspective and understanding their firm. Greater than 50% of investment advisors have strategic priorities to invest in innovative technologies. Strategic priorities. So, you know, I think they have some strategic ideas. I think they see what's coming. Yeah. Um, have they put that down in, when you, when you say priorities to me, I think, all right, this is the first thing I'm doing and this is the next thing. And, th and then after that, so that's a commitment to action. I think instead um, there's a lot of overwhelm. And so I'm gonna say sell on this because I think what you have is um, just so many opportunities, things changing so fast that it's more like strategic notions and kind of, you know, ideas about some new things to do next. Um, where I try to um, clarify there is to definitely have strategic priorities. Like, this is what we've got to get done this quarter. Making that tactical list, which too many people talk about things but don't actually execute on, which is a big problem always. All right, last one here. Um, you're kind of you're kind of on the on the fence of being bullish here. So we'll see. This one will really dictate which side of the fence we're on. Buy or sell startup firms today will eclipse long-standing traditional investment advisors of today over the next 20 years. So startups will eclipse the people that we know of today from investment professionals. Do you mean the startups that are out right now? Yeah. And maybe some that will still come up and crop up into the next five years or so. And, and they that's going to be the the new model the new nucleus yep those are going to be the brand names that people deal with oh the brand names 
Um, no, I'm, I am definitely bearish on that one. Um, the brand names, the brand names are going to buy a lot of those things to get the technology faster. Um, what the startups are doing, that is going to be what the business looks like. Yes. Um, the, the brand names, a few of them, uh, a few will get through and, you know, you'll see a slow turnover, but you're going to see a lot of the exact same brand names and a lot of very similar ownership of, um, you know, it, it's, there is a level where, and we found this out, um, coming into Goldman, there is a level where the infrastructure um, that they can bring to a situation is just so valuable. And um, so, you know, really, if you're if you're independent and away from that, it's about finding, you know, what the value is that someone else can add there. And um, so, no, I, I think a lot of the same brands are with it. I, I agree with you there. I think that the brand names, the Goldman's, the Chase's, the Morgan Stanley's of the world will still be around. Um, but they are going to continue to buy up because they've got money and brand is expensive to create and they've got hundreds of years of it. And so, uh, but there will be some startups I think that will have brand names in 20 years, uh, but not as many. All right, let's get into your closing thoughts and then my closing thoughts and we'll sign off. I'll let you get back to doing what you do best, which is making money and helping others make money. So give me this. What is one process, technology, marketing initiative, whatever it may be, that an investment advisor can adopt today to propel them ahead of their competition? Okay. Um, You know, it's going to be a little bit different for everybody, those strategic priorities. Uh, And so to go really general, I, I think the biggest one I've seen and something that's changed my life in the last couple of years, it's OKRs, uh, Objective Key Result. And it's an idea that comes out of Google and it's just a way of planning and committing and it keeps you tactical because uh, the way the, the methodology works, and, and by the way, if you really wanna find out more about this methodology, and I suggest that you do, then there's a guy named Rick Clow. Uh, from Google Ventures, who has uh, a YouTube that if you just search for it, Rick, K-L-A-U, I think, then uh, you're going to to find his talk on OKRs. And so you set an objective, and then you list out some key results for the objective. Uh, you do four or more, not too many. Uh, I think he gives four to six uh, OKRs a quarter. And uh, those are those are your tactical commitments. And that is, you know, how you measure yourself is the progress on those objectives. And then, you know, when you get down into key results, it's not so much just about high level goals and what you want, um, but it's more about the things you're going to do specifically and the targets you're going to hit to get there. Um, And, you know, if you look in just about any business, but um, definitely advisory practices, then uh, those co- those strategic quarterly uh, reviews of what is it that I want and what is it that I have to do uh, to get that. A lot of times it's, it's fuzzy and you can't really point to it. And when you can point to it, then, you know, a lot of those things that were scary and big about all the change, uh, a lot of it you realize Hey, this was, uh, you know, 
two weeks of late nights. Um, this, this wasn't a lifetime of a practice in flux. And, um, you know, so uh, I think it's really powerful practice and I recommend it for everybody in business. I love that. I love that. Um, OKRs. All right. So now to my wrap up. The fintech startup ecosystem has propelled financial advisors to take action. Robo-advisors jolted onto the scene in 2008-2009 with a fancied-up asset allocation business model, but it caught a wave of people wanting easier access and lower-cost solutions. Out of the gate, many in the industry didn't think the robos would last. Then feelings shifted to thinking these tech solutions would take over our jobs, and ultimately, the pendulum has shifted back to the center. A happy marriage between robos and humans. The big boys in our industry adopted these solutions, actually built what took years by the startups in just a couple of months. And now, 10 years later, these solutions are being talked about as tools to practice management. Technology and innovation isn't going to replace the need of a human when it comes to managing monies, but that shouldn't make you feel comfortable. The uneasiness that robo-advisors provided traditional financial advisors at the beginning should continue on with advisors because being comfortable, being uncomfortable leads to great innovations and inventions. And this means in our industry, an opportunity to create greater value to a larger group of families as a financial advisor. In today's environment, you have two options, stay complacent or stay uncomfortable. Complacency will be the end to you uncomfortableness will lead to a better you. Nathan Slaughter, thank you so much for joining us here on Bridging the Gap. And to all the listeners out there, appreciate you taking some time to bridge the gap between technology and financial advisors. We'll be with you next week.